Hello, everyone. This is Mark C. Crowley, and you're listening to the Lead from the Heart podcast. In the business world, we've long been conditioned to think of kindness, empathy, and compassion as touchy-feely managerial behaviors that have a greater potential to backfire on managers than to inspire any kind of improved performance. And then someone came along and called these soft skills, with the operative word being soft, and that was really all we needed to be dismissive of their potential impact. But if you suddenly had to be hospitalized for a serious injury or illness, I'm willing to guess you'd find it entirely unacceptable if your doctors and nurses failed to display these very same qualities. Somewhere along the line in our lives, most of us have associated being made to feel cared for as an essential part of one's healing and recovery. But here's the interesting thing. For most of his career, as the Chief of Medicine at Cooper University Healthcare in Camden, New Jersey, my guest today, Dr. Stephen Treziak, was just as cynical about the value of caring and compassion as a common workplace manager. He was a believer in hard science and relied on that alone when treating patients. But along came a new boss, Dr. Anthony Mazzarelli, who challenged Stephen to research the effects of compassion on both the well-being of patients and doctors. And after reviewing over 1,000 scientific abstracts and 250 research papers, the two doctors made a profound discovery that's likely to not only profoundly change how doctors care for their patients, but also how we lead and manage people in their jobs going forward. As quick bullets of what they discovered, when healthcare providers take just 40 seconds to make a human connection, patient outcomes improve and medical costs decrease. Medical schools often warn students not to get too close to their patients because too much exposure to human suffering is likely to lead to exhaustion. But they found that connecting with patients actually makes physicians happier and more fulfilled. And one study showed that patient perception of physician compassion was associated with higher trust in the physician. It was the legendary Tom Peters who introduced me to Stephen and Anthony's new bestseller, Compassionomics, the revolutionary scientific evidence that caring makes a difference. And it's a book that proves we must stop looking at compassion in a sentimental or emotional way, but instead from a scientific point of view. I'm excited to dig more into their remarkable findings, and I welcome you to the podcast, Dr. Stephen Treziak. Thanks for having me, Mark. Well, I'm really looking forward to this conversation, and I'm going to get right into it. At the beginning of your book, you say something I absolutely know to be true, that most of us hear words like compassion, love, and kindness, and we instinctively perceive them as expressions of personal weakness rather than signs of strength. So interestingly, as you started the research that led to your book, you personally were highly cynical. So big picture as we get started, what's been your epiphany about the power of compassion? So this started a few years back when my co-author and colleague, CEO of our organization, Anthony Mazzarelli, called me into his office and he said, We've got some instructions from a consultant. Now, I don't know if any of your listeners dread those words that, you know, the consultant told them what to do, <laughs> but a consultant told us what to do. And the consultant basically told our healthcare organization that if we wanted to do better, provide better quality care, provide it at a lower cost and high quality and drive patient experience, that the best thing that we can do is care for patients as much as we possibly can. And specifically what the consultant was telling us to do was to show more compassion. So immediately my CEO colleague started to panic and he was thinking, how am I going to get 600 physicians to buy in to doing something better that they probably already think that they do fairly well? Although our patient experience ratings at the time weren't exactly where we wanted them to be. And so he called me into his office and he said, I need you to science this up. And so I'm a research nerd by background. So I'm an intensivist, a specialist in intensive care medicine. And I was doing research in a field called resuscitation science. So basically my colleagues and I, we were trying to figure out what was the optimal level of oxygen in the blood in order to prevent permanent brain damage after resuscitation from cardiac arrest. We had grants from the NIH to support our work. We were hitting every milestone for success. And I was 
a researcher or a leading researcher for the organization. And so he called me into his office and he said, I need you to science this up. And I thought, I looked at him like, are you absolutely out of your mind? And what my epiphany was is that after evaluating the scientific evidence, and we reviewed more than 1,000 scientific abstracts, more than 280 original science research papers are actually cited in Compassionomics, we found abundant data and a signal that was crystal clear that compassion matters not just in meaningful ways, the ways that are intuitive, but also in measurable ways. And that was an epiphany for both of us as we saw the signal form in the data after we curated all the scientific evidence. My epiphany was a scientific one. It's in being a researcher that approach, the scientific method and approaching things through the lens of science is, that's my go-to. But my epiphany was actually driven by the data. Well, you know, it's amusing to me that we have to prove some of the things that we sort of instinctively know to be true. You know, we need scientific proof. But I'm going to ask what this means, science this up. I think he's asking you to research it, and I'm wondering if he's asking you to do it in a way that validates the consultant or invalidates the consultant. But I, the point that I wanted to make is that you yourself were looking at it as you know, I'm going to find evidence that's going to refute this. Is that kind of how you were thinking about it initially? Well, we took an approach called systematic review, and that's where you go through a very rigorous methodology to collate and then analyze all the available evidence. And what we were doing is testing the hypothesis that compassion matters for patients, for patient care, and the quality of care, and for those who care for patients. So, our healthcare providers. Were you looking at it personally as this isn't likely to be validated, whereas your colleague was looking at it from this probably will be validated? In other words, how are you both approaching this? Well, he's not only a physician, but a lawyer by background. So he would often take the approach or he might be have been trained to take the approach where we are trying to make an argument. But that's not how you can approach things as a scientist. You have to be totally agnostic about your hypothesis and the data will bear out whatever they bear out. What we found very clearly in the data is that there is abundant evidence that compassion matters for all three of those things, for patients, for patient care, and for those who care for patients. And I approached it that way as a scientist. Now, there are many people who don't need this sort of an approach. So, for example, nurses. Nurses know this intuitively. Mm -hmm. And in fact, some of the pushback I received from my book is actually from nurses because they think, you know, typical doctor takes something that nurses have known for like all of the history of nursing. We've all known this. And now you just did a scientific approach and think you found something new. But we knew this all along. That's wonderful. And they're right. They're 100% right. It's just that I needed to uh, satisfy my inner research nerd in taking this approach because it's just my go-to. But what we think is unique about the work that we did in curating the scientific evidence and evaluating 280 original science research papers is that we looked at a familiar thing in an unfamiliar way. So everybody knows what compassion is or thinks that they know what compassion is, although people might define it a little bit differently. But the unfamiliar way was to examine it through the lens of science. And some of the studies are very striking about the association between more compassion and better quality of care, better outcomes. And why didn't we know it before? Well, I, we think that over time, through history and the decades, that these studies, when they came out, they made a ripple or a splash, but they hadn't really been pushed together and curated in such a way that they'd be combined, so they made it a wave. And we hope that the evidence that we've assembled for the reader in Compassionomics is a tidal wave of data that convince people that compassion isn't just in the art of medicine, but it's also an evidence-based therapy, essentially. But it's evidence-based and belongs in the science of medicine. Well, I mean, I think as we were talking about before we started, that I commend you because the truth is, is that most of us, and there's complete parallels to this in workplaces in terms of leadership and applying 
compassion and kindness and empathy and caring that we have this prove it to me sort of mindset. And so all of the different research that you were able to tap into is sort of overwhelming in its conclusion that you're saying caring and science are not mutually exclusive. And we've always believed that they were in business. And so I imagine at least doctors have believed very much the same thing in medicine. Yes, the conventional thinking would be that the science and the art of medicine are mutually exclusive, or at least that they're distinct. And what we found is that there's science in the art of medicine, and the science is strong. You just have to be rigorous in your approach to look for it. So ground us in what your understanding of what it means to be compassionate is. Let's get this out on the table here. Sure. And then you also make the assertion in your book that medicine in general has a crisis of compassion. So tell us about that, too. Sure. So compassion is defined as the emotional response to another's pain or suffering involving an authentic desire to help. So it's slightly different from a very closely related word, empathy. So empathy is the sensing, detecting, feeling, and understanding another person's pain or suffering. But compassion goes beyond empathy in that compassion also involves taking some action to help in some way that's hopefully meaningful. And there are neuroscience underpinnings for this distinction in terms. So, for example, neuroscience researchers using a technique called functional MRI, where you can see what part of the brain is activated at any given moment in time. That research has shown that when you have empathy, meaning you bear witness to another's pain or suffering, it hits you right in the pain center of the brain. So the phrase, I feel your pain, well, there's actually neuroscience behind that. It is painful. It's very uncomfortable to bear witness to another's pain or suffering. And I think we've all experienced that before. But when people take action to help in reduce someone's pain or suffering, take action with compassion, On functional MRI, a different neural structure, neural pathway is activated. It's an area of the brain that is considered to be a reward center. So positive affect, positive emotion and affiliation, it feels good. And I don't want to be overly simplistic with this, but that's part of the reason why it feels good to help people. There's neuroscience behind that. And so one of the ways that you can think about it from a neuroscience perspective is that empathy hurts, but compassion heals. And we often say that you can have empathy for somebody through a one-way mirror, but you can't necessarily have compassion. Mm -hmm. But when you take action, that's really what's transformative. So a few years ago, I spoke to a professor at the Wharton Business School, and he was telling me that he was in charge of reinventing the curriculum there and that it mm-hmm. had largely been focused on manipulating income statements and and PL statements, et cetera. And almost no, I think he said less than 5% of the curriculum was focused on teaching MBA students how to manage other human beings successfully. Yeah, And so I'm wondering if you think that your book is going to change the curriculum because in medical schools, because I think you point out that nowhere in medical school curriculums is there any attention given to even empathy and compassion, any of that, right? Which just sort of mystifying in many respects. But what are your thoughts on that? Well, we're, we're getting better. So at our medical school, Cooper Medical School of Rowan University, we have a center for humanism and we are infusing those principles into what we teach the next generation of doctors. But a number of medical schools now are doing that as well and have been for many years. And one of the fundamental questions is, can compassion be taught and learned? So I used to believe, and this is, I think, a fundamental question that applies across many industries beyond healthcare. But I used to believe, and this is before our journey through the data, which was a two-year journey, by the way, of curating all the scientific evidence. I used to believe, before we started, that people were either wired for compassion or they were not. So it was something that was in the fabric of who they are. It was in their DNA. And there are studies that show that to some extent, there may be 
genetic predispositions. Jamil Zaki from Stanford wrote in his recent book that that's true, but it's probably only about 30% about the capacity to care. And the rest is nurture, so to speak, rather than nature. And after we went through all the evidence, and then we did a research study ourselves here at Cooper, which we published in a journal called Plus One in 2019, we synthesized all of the data for compassion and empathy training programs for clinicians. And specifically in this study, it was for physicians. And what we found is that there have been 54 studies historically of taking some sort of a training program. And what they were teaching is behaviors, importantly, right? Behaviors. Because the person sitting across from you doesn't know necessarily what you're thinking or believing or feeling in your mind or your heart, but they know how you behave towards them. And what these studies did when we pushed them together and analyzed them in a sort of meta-analysis, what we found is that three-quarters of the studies that were teaching behaviors, they were effective in moving the needle on compassionate behaviors to some extent. And many of these were as rated by patients and what patients felt. So that just corroborates what's been found through many other studies. And this is inside of healthcare, but also outside of healthcare. You actually can learn to be more compassionate. But the key, the key is that you have to believe that you can. So many of your listeners are probably familiar with the work of Dr. Carol Dweck from Stanford on mindset, mm -hmm. and she studies growth mindset. And this has been real transformative for education in that what educators are realizing is that growth mindset, meaning the belief that you can get better at something, is vital to success. Whereas if you have a fixed mindset, meaning you think that it's a trait, not a skill, those people tend to not persevere and keep trying to get better at something and they, they fail more often. So having a growth mindset makes you work at it more because you believe that you can. And her laboratory from Stanford has found that this is also true for empathy. So what they found is that people who believe that empathy is something you can develop in. They will work harder at it and get better at it and they will grow. But people who don't have a growth mindset and they believe that empathy and compassion are traits, not skills, they won't grow. And so I think that this is important for your colleague at Wharton to recognize that you actually can, the scientific evidence, if you just look at the data, it supports that you actually can train people in how to treat others better. I mean, that's what the research shows. Well, I mean, this is a very important thing that you're speaking about because it's one of the big questions. In fact, interestingly enough, they couldn't possibly have known that you and I would be speaking. Somebody tweeted me the other day and said, can compassion be learned? <laughs> and so I said, well, I'm actually going to be asking this question in a few weeks here. So you just answered it instinctively. And it's important, not just in terms of changing the cultures of you know hospitals and healthcare systems, but it's profoundly important in terms of changing behavior and how people are managed in their jobs. If we haven't up till now valued the importance of having managers be caring and compassionate and empathetic, and now we're expecting it from them, the big question was, are we going to have to let 70% of them go because they're never going to be able to get this or it's not in their mm -hmm. DNA or they're just going to resist it? And you've just done a really great job of explaining that you can actually succeed at this, as long as you believe you can succeed at it, take some work, but you can get there. One thing I'd like to add is that it's super good news, especially for me. So I am, without question, a work in progress. So you might think that because I wrote a book called Compassionomics and I'm on your podcast today talking about the power and the science of compassion that I must be the most compassionate doctor. And in a far from it, I am working hard to get better at compassion every day. And I see it now and I see where my opportunities are and, and I can make them uh, hopefully an honest appraisal of how compassionate I am. And I look at it not just when I'm at the bedside in the ICU and taking care of patients and their families, but I know what I have to work on when I'm at home. When I'm working with other colleagues, I have a lot of work that I can do that I need to do. But thankfully, science shows that I can. 
And that's been part of the epiphany that I've had. And it's been sort of challenging to me personally, because now I realize that I have no excuses. And trying to up my game and caring for other people is something that I am definitely working on at a personal level. Well, thank you for that. I'm certain that our audience is looking at you and saying, I wish I could say thanks to him for that, because sometimes, you know, we all want to be perfect. We all want to excel. And somebody points out that we have a limitation or we have an uphill challenge to improve ourselves in an area that we really hadn't been using up until now. It feels a little threatening and you've just reminded us all that there's a start point and you can get there. And I really appreciate that. Something else I wanted to ask you, you say that we have a crisis of compassion, not just in medicine, Mm -hmm. but in society. So what does that mean? And what's the cause of it? And what's the cure of it? So can I tell you a story? Sure, by all means. Okay. So on February 22nd, 2007, on a snowy stretch of highway outside of Uppsala, Sweden, two buses collided head-on. The crash was so horrific that one bus literally sheared the other bus in half along the long axis. Extrication of the victims was so difficult and so complex that the case literally made it into the annals of a disaster medicine textbook. Now, five years later, researchers asked the question, what do survivors remember? They interviewed every survivor. There were 56 survivors in this crash. Tragically, many people died, but 56 survived. And they asked these 56 people what they remembered and what they found using a rigorous qualitative research methodology, that there were two themes in the data. The first was expected. It was the physical pain that they felt at the moment of impact. But the other theme, it was a lack of compassion from the caregivers at the hospital. But the data become more and even more striking when you read the methods section and you realize that the victims were taken to multiple different trauma centers and they all had the same experience. Mm. So these data began to open my eyes to a stark reality. In healthcare, we're in the midst of a compassion crisis. So I can put some data to that for you. Nearly half of Americans in a study that was published in Health Affairs, one of our top health policy journals, investigators from Harvard found that 46% of Americans believe not only that our healthcare system is not compassionate, but also that our healthcare providers are not compassionate. Numerous studies show that physicians specifically miss 60 to 90% of opportunities to respond to patients with compassion, and compassion comprises less than 1% of all physician statements to patients. We interrupt patients when they come to the clinic to visit the doctor. On average, according to data from the Mayo Clinic, we interrupt them at a median of the 12-second mark. And in my domain, critical care One study funded by the NIH from the University of Washington found that in end-of-life conversations with patients and families in the ICU, fully one-third of those conversations have no expressions of compassion from the care team to the patients and families. And if there would be any time when one is in need of compassion, it would be at the end of life. And even going further, there's evidence now in the era of electronic health records that healthcare providers spend more time looking into computer screens than looking patients in the eyes. And so based on all of these data taken together, I conclude we're in the midst of a compassion crisis. Now, we might just think that this problem spills over from society. Maybe we have a societal compassion crisis, and there are data for that as well. So a recent study from Harvard University of 10,000 middle school and high school age students found that these youth, the vast majority of these youth believe that their parents, their parents value their achievements and accolades more than their caring for others. A very rigorous meta-analysis from the University of Michigan found that empathy among college-age students is declining over time, and the rate of that decline is actually accelerating. And in a really striking 2016 study from Pew Research, fully one-third of Americans endorsed that they don't consider compassion for others to be among their core values. 
So these are the data. And I think the data are fairly compelling that we have a compassion crisis indeed. What's the cause? Like, what's your conclusion in terms of how do we get here? And what's your conclusion of how do we get out of here? So I'll point you towards some more data. And this came from a survey that was supported by the NIH. And first of all, I should acknowledge the causes are multifactorial. This is super complex, and I'm not trying to reduce this into like one little bucket or anything like that. But I do want to point to one thing that I think is modifiable. And this survey found that for self-care, what we consider now to be self-care, people's activities for self-care over time have become more and more isolating. Whereas in decades past, when we were stressed, when we were bothered by something, we sought solace in in other people, in bonding with family and with friends. And now many of the activities are things like the app on my phone, I'll just meditate, things that are sort of, well, they're solitary, they're isolating. Mm -hmm. And there is abundant research that supports the concept that the key to resilience are relationships. And in fact, the Harvard study of adult development has has underscored the importance of relationships. So this is the longest running study. The grant study. Yeah, the Harvard grant study, which went on for 80 years. And what those investigators found is that the main determinant of, or what predicts good health and longevity into your 80s isn't some biomarker when you're 50s. It's not your cholesterol. It's not your blood sugar. It's not your EKG. It's not any of these things. It's actually the quality of your relationships. Mm -hmm. Connections. And so I think that to a great extent, we're seeing deterioration of relationships. I think that more and more over time, we go into our little bubble, so to speak. And I don't know what all the causes are, but I know that there are trends that are related to human connection that I think are troubling. Is there any interest in medicine right now to give doctors assistance, some kind of people that could perhaps document what the treatments were and what the case study is online so that the doctors could, you know, relay that information to them, let them type it into the system so that they don't have to spend so much time? Because I think one of the things you're suggesting here is the technology itself is particularly comparing doctors, how much time they're spending in front of a computer, and then children in college who are declining in empathy. It seems that the amount of time that we're spending online and how we're using that time to not be present with people is actually harming us. So I'm wondering if medicine is making any effort to reduce the amount of time that the doctors are actually spending online. And do you think that that's a treatment for all of us? Well, I think you're referring to a comment I made earlier about there's evidence that healthcare providers now spend more time looking into their computer screens and looking their patients in the eyes. Mm -hmm. And there's some bitter irony here because years ago there was the recognition that healthcare was a bit arcane or archaic and the idea that the records are not computerized was a major threat to quality. And by the way, the people who thought that were completely right. I want to be super clear that electronic health records save lives flat out. There's no debate on that. But it's always the unintended consequences, right? So there's this unintended consequence of this focus on the computer and the fact that it actually made documentation of visits to the doctor more difficult. And so Atul Gawande Mm -hmm. brilliantly pointed out in a New Yorker article why doctors hate their computers. He pointed out that we went down the road of electronic health records because they were supposed to make things better. And as I said earlier, they are absolutely vital for quality of care. But what it did, have you ever heard of something called a scribe, a medical scribe? So have you ever gone to the doctor and there's somebody next to the doctor typing everything into a computer? This is what I'm getting at. I understand what a scribe is, but I've never heard it used in this reference. So yeah, go on, please. Yeah, so candidates for medical school, they typically take these scribe jobs while they're waiting to get into medical school. And that's how they learn a little bit about healthcare. And so there's a a scribe in the room, like taking everything down. And Atul Gawande points out in this New Yorker article that electronic health records were supposed to make everything better. And now you actually need another human being 
sitting next to you in the office. <laughs> right. That was completely unnecessary before. So that's making it better, right? So like I said, there's bitter irony there. However, there are many, many companies now working on technology where literally the scribe function is all automatic and there's microphones in the room and it happens to document everything so that you can focus on your patient and spend more what I call eyeball time, like looking your patients in the eyes rather than staring in your, into your computer screen. This is super important. What I would love our electronic health records to get better at is giving us cues. Like I can't tell you how many pop-up messages I see on our electronic health record for check this, check that, check this. Wouldn't it be great if what would pop up is, oh, by the way, it's the anniversary of her husband's death. Yes. You might yes. want to ask about that and, you know, ask her how she's doing. This is exactly where the parallel is in business. The studies show a different number every time I see it. But all I know is that the amount of time that people are spending in front of a computer just responding to emails and texts is ridiculous, right? It's four or five hours of people's day. And so what happens then is that we get so caught up in maintaining the communication, responding to emails, sending emails, responding to texts, that we're not making any real personal connections with people. And so, you know, in business, it's getting worse where we have less time. And so this idea of a, of a nudge to say, time to call, you know, Stephen Treziak and see how he's doing. You know, he's your employee and you haven't talked to him in a week. That would be very beneficial because I think we have to sort of be, like I said, nudged out of that. And so are you seeing this happening now? Are you creating more thoughtfulness in your own organization this way? What we want is a culture of compassion. And we are moving toward that. The example I gave you, the electronic health record, that'd be wonderful. And those are things that we'd love to see in the future. But nudges to maybe not only call your employee because you haven't talked to him in a while, but maybe also remind him, hey, his mom's sick. He's going through a tough time. That's actually why you should call him. You know what I mean? I think that those are innovations that we need. We, you know, everyone always wants to talk about innovations. How about innovations to make us more human, mm -hmm. not less, right? Sorry, we need it. But yeah, I totally agree with you. And speaking of that, one of the things that you said in the book is that you say that, you know, the common complaint from doctors is along the lines of what we've just been talking about. Like, I don't have time to be compassionate with people. And so in some cases, they feel that they're too busy to take time to get to know people and to see what's really sure. going on with them. But sometimes they also don't really care. Like mm -hmm. I had this doctor that tell you a story. I'm a runner and my best friend and I've been running for over 30 years every Sunday if we could. And so we have the same route and it's near the beach. And we guess who we run into every Sunday? My doctor. So I say hello to him and his wife as we pass by. And then I go to have my visit with him and, and I go, hey, I'm the guy who, you know, says hello to you every Sunday. And like no reaction. And this went on for like three or four years and he never remembered. It was like it made no, it was of no importance to him whatsoever. So finally I had to change doctors. But, you know, it was just like, really? Like at this point in time, you don't remember that I've been saying hello to you every Sunday? You know, he just didn't care. So there are some of those doctors. And then you're supposed to trust that doctor with your innermost secrets, right? Exactly. Yeah. It took me a long time. But this leads me to a couple of things that I really want to ask you. The first is, is do you think that it would be wise to weed out doctors, this is analogous in business, who really don't adapt to this, who really, once you present them the information and you give them the opportunity to learn how to be more compassionate with people, that they just don't show it? Do you think that they shouldn't be treating human beings? And then you also make this amazing statement, and I probably shouldn't partner them up in the same question, but you found that it takes just 40 seconds to make an emotional connection with someone. So tell me about both of those things. Yeah, so let's talk about time. So I'm thinking about a study that was published in the Journal of General Internal Medicine several years back, where in this study, part of the results, they asked physicians do you have enough time to treat your patients with compassion? And 56% said no. 
it begs the question, how much time does it actually take? So researchers from Johns Hopkins University wanted to find out. And so they did a randomized control trial. And it was in a population of patients who were cancer survivors. And the primary outcome measure was anxiety. And if you've ever been touched by cancer or somebody close to you has been touched by cancer, you know that that's a pretty important outcome measure. Mm -hmm. So what these investigators did is they randomized these cancer survivors to one of two consultations. One was a visit with a oncologist and it was strictly informational. And then they randomized patients to what they considered to be a compassion intervention. And I could explain it to you, but instead, I'm just going to read it to you, okay? Sure. And so it went like this. I know this is a tough experience to go through, and I want you to know that I'm here with you. Some of the things that I say to you today may be difficult to understand, so I want you to feel comfortable in stopping me if something I say is confusing or doesn't make sense. We're here together, and we'll go through this together. And then at the end of the consultation with the oncologist, again, I know this is a tough time for you, and I want to emphasize that we're in this together. I'll be with you each step along the way. What these investigators from Johns Hopkins found is that that additional communication to the patient was associated with a statistically significant reduction in the patient's level of anxiety using a very well-validated scale to measure anxiety. And so how long did it take? Well, they timed it. And what I just communicated to you, that extra messaging of caring and compassion took just 40 seconds. So what that tells us is that 40 seconds is all it actually takes to make a meaningful compassion connection with patients and for that matter with anybody who's around us by extension. And some people bristle when I talk about this because they actually say there's really no time dimension at all. You can go through your day with brusque efficiency, letting every single person you come in contact with know exactly how busy you are. Or you can treat people with compassion. And if somebody held a stopwatch to it, it actually wouldn't take you any extra time. So we, in Compassionomics, we curated data from five different studies and found that a meaningful compassion connection takes less than one minute. And so it doesn't take as much time as we actually think. So why is it that we think it takes so much time? And so actually there was a University of Pennsylvania study that examined this question, what about our perception of time? And the outcome measure for their study was something that they called time affluency, time affluency. So that's the feeling that you have plenty of time. You're not in a hurry. You're not rushed. And what they did is they randomized study subjects to four different uses of time, and then they tested their feelings of time affluency. So they randomized them to spending time on themselves, to wasting time, to receiving an unexpected windfall of free time, or lastly, randomizing them to spending time on other people. And there was only one use of time that was associated with an increase in time of fluency or the feeling that you have plenty of time. It was spending time on other people. So there was something about spending time on other people that makes you feel different about the time that you have. And these data show me that actually when I often feel that I don't have time for somebody, it's because I'm in my own head and in my own head, I don't have time. But if you actually studied it in a scientific way, I do have enough time. And if I would spend that time, I would probably feel different about the time that I have. Just those 40 seconds of what you read to me. I mean, you know, I'm not dealing with any of the situation that you just described, but I was moved by it. I mean, it just went right into my heart and I was so grateful for it and then realized, wait a minute, <laughs> he's just reading this to me. So part of it is, it's not just the 40 seconds, it's taking the time to be generous with people and to get out of your own experience and to get into somebody else's, right? Yeah, and I think the data that I mentioned to you on time of fluency, it suggests that giving time 
gives you time, or at least you'll feel like you were given time. There's something transformative about helping other people that make you feel different about the time that you have. But until you do it, you'll just feel like you're too busy. But it's not just time that's affected here. By giving time to other people in the meaningful way that you're describing, it actually is transcendent, isn't it? In the sense Absolutely. that, right? I mean, that's really my takeaway here is that you're enriching your own life. As a leader, I feel that actually the very end of my book, I said, I don't remember any of the goals we had. I don't remember any of the records we set. I don't remember any of the numbers. What I remember is the impact that I had on people. And so the only way I remember that is because I made that investment. I saw the impact of this. So I'm completely aligned with this. But it's also, I think, is what makes being a leader, being a doctor, even more meaningful, right? It goes back to the bus crash story I told you earlier. Mm -hmm. So what did people remember five years later? They can't tell you the technical aspects of the surgeries that they underwent or, mm -hmm. or, or any of the procedures that they were a part of or received, but they know exactly how they were made to feel in that moment. And unfortunately, in that case, it was usually an absence of compassion. But I can tell you that the opposite is true as well. So I was in my ICU. This was an experience from just a couple months ago. I was in the ICU and seeing a patient and, and speaking with the patient's sister. And the patient was doing very poorly. And although we hadn't given up hope and we were still trying everything we could to try to save his life, it was something that was really appearing to be not treatable, not reversible. And it was a very difficult talk with the patient's sister. It was emotional and it was hard. And as we were finishing and I was getting ready to go, she said to me, you don't remember me, do you? And that's not a question you often get mm -hmm. if you're an ICU doctor. And I said, I'm really sorry, I don't. And she said, well, I wouldn't expect you to because you see so many patients in here and, and it was a long time ago. But seven years ago, my mom was dying and she was in that room right over there. She was pointing across the hall and you were the doctor and we've had this talk before. And I mean, that was a powerful moment, but what followed was even more powerful. But what she said is what I will never forget was the compassion. She didn't use the word compassion. She used the word caring. What I'll never forget was the caring that those nurses provided to me all day long when my mom was dying. And she said, it's still so difficult because I was so close with my mom. But every time those moments of difficulty and those memories come back, the thing that also comes back to me was is the memory of how compassionate they were. And even seven years later, it makes me feel better today. And so oftentimes people underestimate the power of compassion for people, but those moments reverberate, you're revisited. And what I teach my medical students, my resident physicians, my fellows, those learners that, that join me on my rounds in the ICU every day, what I try to teach them is that they hold more power than they can possibly imagine. Mm -hmm. And many of our patients we can't talk to and because they're in a coma or on a ventilator and, and can't communicate, but we have really hard talks with families. And I tell them they're going to remember this talk with you possibly for the rest of their life, right? So when you go in there, just be mindful of that. What do you want them to be revisited by every time their mind goes back to this moment? Because we meet people in my job, we meet people on the worst day of their life. That's really stunning. You said earlier that you're a work in progress, and yet this is a patient that is reminding you that seven years ago, you chose to be highly compassionate with her and her family. How did that make you feel? It made me feel good. It also made me feel real proud of the nurses that we have, because I think that those are the, you know, I spend only a certain amount of time with each patient. And the nurses are there at the bedside all day long. And the nurses were the ones that she really remembered. I wonder, could I have done better? 
And they're just power in those moments. And nurses are the real experts in compassion. Like I'm a science guy and I analyzed 280 original science research papers and did a systematic review and looked at all the data and confidence intervals and p-values and all that, right? But the real experts in compassion are the nurses. And, you know, I often tell people that I learned how to treat patients, like the technical part of care from the journal articles and the textbooks and from my teachers over the years. But I learned how to take care of people from the nurses, And I've learned more from them, especially our our nurses in in the ICU at Cooper, more than you can possibly imagine. You probably remember this, but there was an article in the New York Times that you're reminding me of that suggested that in many cases, doctors are disrespectful and treat nurses really badly, like under their shoe kind of a thing. Is that something that was characteristic of doctors prior to your work, even currently? I sure hope not. I mean, if you're a smart doctor, you learn from the nurses. Let's put it that way. And many things were tolerated behavior-wise in medicine decades in decades past, and they're well chronicled. None of them were okay then, but they were tolerated or permitted. They're definitely not okay now. And so we don't tolerate any disrespect to anybody. And that's probably true for workplaces across you know all domains that... Things used to be a lot different years ago, and they weren't okay back then, but they're definitely not okay now. I think you're right. Stephen, if you've heard any of our previous podcasts, you know that we take a break from the discussion around this time and we move into what we call the heartbeat round. So I have about a dozen slightly more personal questions I'd like to ask you, but with these, your goal is to answer them really quickly and instinctively, and in other words, in our language, in a heartbeat. So are you game? Ready. Okay. Something that gives you hope. The vaccine. The most positive thing to come out of the COVID pandemic. Perspective. A prediction about the future you're pretty certain will come true. Mark, there's no data on the future. That's interesting. My most recent guest made that exact point in her book. So uh, thank you. Someone who's given your life great inspiration. Uh, My wife. A book that should be required reading for every human. The boy, the mole, the fox. And the horse. I'll look that one up. Three things you do to sustain your personal well-being. Pray, laugh, and sleep. Your favorite place on earth. The beach. Besides love and compassion, what's one thing the world needs right now? Healing. Magazine or newspaper you never miss reading. The onion. Really? That's great. Yeah, that's, that's wonderful. One word that described your writing process. Torture. A lesson you wish you'd learned much earlier in life. Don't take yourself so seriously. Your synonym for the word heart. Soul. The quality that derails the most leadership careers. Hubris. One subject you think we'd all be wise to bone up on. Joy. Stephen, I've done this 62 times, and not one time has anyone given me quick answers. (laughs) Never have they been in a heartbeat, (laughs) and you just nailed it. So congratulations. I'm totally impressed. Halfway through this, I'm like, he's actually doing it the way I intended it. So it's all good no matter how anybody does it, but you did it really well. So thank you very, very much, and let's get back to our discussion. Awesome. Your book, I think, came out about a year and a half ago. So I would imagine that most of the 600 and 450 doctors that are in your hospital group, that they've read your book or are familiar with your book and know the thesis. And I'm wondering, has your organization's culture transformed? Have all those doctors embraced this? Did you meet with resistance? Did anybody leave? What's the snapshot? So our organization uh, has done much better with patient experience over the last few years. I'm not going to draw any sort of cause and effect from the work that we've done with Compassionomics, but hopefully we've just been, you know, one important building block towards a culture of compassion, and that's what we want to be known for. And so recently we had an exercise where we were in a leaders meeting with all the different physician leaders, chairs of departments and leaders of service lines. And one of our colleagues asked us what words, we were going through an exercise where what words characterize Cooper the best? 
And it was an effort to try to determine what do we think as we revisit, because you should revisit your core values on a regular basis, right? And the word that came through loud and clear and was at the top of the list was compassion. So I hope that we've just done a little bit part of building block in synthesizing all this research. And you have to allow the reader to make their own conclusion, right? So we just synthesize the research. We think the signal is loud and clear that compassion matters for patients, for patient care, and for those who care for patients. And yeah, we just hope that that's had a meaningful impact, hopefully for the organization. Well, congratulations on that. You're also making me ask, does compassion, caring, if you boil all that down, is it really love we're talking about? I think so. I'm not an expert in that, but uh, I think so. Okay. I want to read something to you now, and this is at the end of your book. And it says, if you've read this far, it is likely that you already know in your heart that compassion was powerful, but we never aimed to change your heart. Your heart was already in the right place. Rather, in writing this book, we aim to change your mind, to help you open your eyes to the scientific basis of what you already knew to be the right thing to do. Tell me about that. The word heart obviously strikes me, and you've mentioned it three times, and you've distinguished it from the mind. I'm curious as to what was going through your mind when you wrote these words and what you really wanted to convey there. Really, the main question that drives the book is, does compassion really matter? Now, you might say, of course, compassion matters. It's a cornerstone of the art of medicine. We ought to treat all patients with compassion. And of course, I agree, and I've always agreed. But that wasn't the question. The question was, does compassion really matter? Not just met meaningful ways, but also in measurable ways. And that's why we wanted to synthesize all the evidence to test the hypothesis the reality is that many people already knew intuitively that compassion mattered in meaningful ways. But what we wanted to do is give some ammunition, so to speak, because if you want to be able to use data to also make the case, not just on making a case on an emotional appeal, but on a, an appeal to reason, an appeal to rationality, making a scientific case for compassion. That's really what we wanted to do. And again, just taking an unfamiliar approach to something familiar. And we think that any reader that makes it to the end is a believer in heart. And so we just wanted to also synthesize all this evidence to convince the reader that it's not just a heart story. Compassion is associated with better clinical outcomes, better quality of care, and better resilience and resistance to burnout for the people who take care of others. And even better financial performance, you added, which some people listening will be pleased to hear that it actually made you drive down your costs and elevate the profitability of your healthcare system as a result. So you've just done a beautiful job of summarizing this. We're going to end it here. On behalf of my audience, Stephen, I just want to tell you it's marvelous work. And I congratulate you and your colleague on really pushing an understanding of something that we've thought was sort of soft and unnecessary into its essential and fundamental. And so thank you so very much for joining us. Thank you so much, Mark. It's been a pleasure. Before we close, I want to invite you to reach out to me. I'm Mark C. Crowley on both Twitter and LinkedIn, and my website has a direct link to my email. So if you have any feedback for us on the show, I would love to hear from you. And as always, I want to thank my team, including Ken Boynton, Brandy Yant, Carrie Finnessy, and my producer, Eric Oz. I could not make this happen without their talented and inspired support. And before I go, I leave you with my constant reminder. When you lead from the heart, your people will follow. Oh, and one more thing. Please tell your friends all about us. This is Mark C. Crowley thanking you for listening and signing off for now. 